at you. I'll have to apologize today. Uh, <clears throat> and I'll be my drink, drinking my cup of quite a bit this morning. It's a cup of water. I'm mean, having a, a throat. You know, you get those coughs where there's an itchiness in your throat that just won't ever go away. You just want to keep coughing. That's how I feel right now. So <clears throat> it was worse because the first service I was crying. I was low well. So it was just, uh, it was very emotional. Okay. <clears throat> but I've got, I think I've shaken it all out and I'll just cough this service. All right, <clears throat> so please, please forgive me for that. Uh, bar- pardon? I have a couple, I think. I've got one. Uh, <clears throat> so thank you, thank you. <laughs> In fact, I'm, I should just pop it now. <clears throat> please edit that out of the tape. <clears throat> Well, it's good to be back here uh, in the pulpit here after uh, it's been two Sundays that I've been away. Uh, I want to just again express my appreciation to uh, the elders and shepherds of this church. Uh, first, first of all, because uh, they fill the pulpit when I'm not able to, uh, for especially on last moments, known as Elder Dale, uh, <laughs> proclaimed a, a faithful word to us. And I, I, it was just that week that my dad passed away, and he just kind of came in and filled in just on a moment's notice. Really thankful for that brother. Uh, just, uh, he actually did an excellent just exhortation walking us through uh, Romans 8. And he actually said something there that man, really just triggered my thoughts. and said, wow, that's, that's exactly what I'm going to talk about uh, for Good Friday. And so I'm just thankful for Dale for that. Appreciate that. Uh, of course, as always, Pastor Alton filling the pulpit on a monthly basis. Please continue to pray for Pastor Alton and Carissa. That, you know, they're candidating this month particularly. They're going to be speaking every, he's going to be speaking every Sunday, except for Easter Sunday. We got him on Easter Sunday. So I uh, made sure we got that. Um, he's going to be candidating at uh, the Marine Mission Church out in, uh, out in uh, down the peninsula. So just pray for them as they're just seeking the Lord's will with with regards to the the, the possible ministry for them. Uh, let's see. Uh, I also just want to again express on behalf of Cindy and myself and Kiara, your our appreciation for your love for us. Thank you so much for your love. Many of you have expressed your just your prayers for us, your your kind uh, thoughts, your offer, your emails, your notes, your your letters, your cards. Uh, just coming up, hugging me. Uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, and, and throughout this past two weeks, uh, God is good. And so really, through the, the death of my father, I, who uh, I just come to appreciate more the, the family that God gives me, not only the family of the, my, that is back home in Seattle for, for us, but the family of God. Not only, uh, not only in Seattle, the family of God came out there as well for, to attend our, my father's funeral, but the family of God here, and I appreciate you so much. Uh, you've been a blessing to me, and I thank you all for your love towards us. I'm so thankful for you all. Well, with that, <clears throat> yeah, good, I didn't cry. All right, let's get into Let's open up. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 through 17. As we want to continue our... Uh, our series through 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17. And this is the third and final part. I, was, I had intended to preach some three ser- sermons in a row, but I just did not have the opportunity. And so today we're going to complete that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Our focus this morning will be on verse 16 to 17, but I want to read 10 through 17 for us all. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth these words. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. 
We pray that as we look to your word this morning, may you cause us to grow in our understanding of you, in our understanding of your will for your church. Speak to us, Father, from your word. Give us instructions. Give us wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes, Lord, that we would not only understand what this passage speaks about, but that we would apply it to our lives, that we would grow in our appreciation for the church that you've called us to be a part of, that you cause us to grow in our greater dedication to serve and build up this body that you have placed us in. And Father, that we would do our, do our best to be diligent to not allow this church to ever be destroyed. Lord, we pray that you would build your church through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's preach with notes. <clears throat> Last weekend, as you all know, I buried my father in a grave next to my mother's. And although I have the hope of seeing them again one day, it was one of the more sorrowful moments of my life. Losing the, the last of my parents uh, was like a, I felt like a, a stage of life was, was kind of entered into. A line was crossed where I've lost the very ones who I could always know would love me unconditionally from the very, and they've demonstrated it from the very beginning of my life to the day they left this world. The next day after the funeral, Cindy Kiara and I headed back to the Bay Area. Where on Tuesday, we learned from Cindy's ultrasound, many of you know she's uh, expecting, that we are expecting twins, twin boys, in fact. And we just, uh, we rejoiced. After 19 years of marriage, uh, many of those years thinking that we would have no children, God has not only given us one child, Kiara, he's given us three children. We're so thankful. But these situations, these circumstances, death and life, life and death, are two circumstances that are common to all of us. Live long enough, you will experience them all in different ways. The death of a loved one, death of a friend, death of your spouse. Sometimes the death of a child. You will live long enough, you will experience life. The birth of a life into your family, whether your own or a fellow relatives or siblings. And when these circumstances take place in our life, they really have a way of reordering our priorities in life. They help us kind of look at everything again anew, if you will. To see things with, sometimes I like to say, to see things with clarity. Especially, we've come to see what is really important about our life on earth. There's many things that we can do on earth. Many things that we're all kind of involved in and and all of them are good because God's created this world for us to enjoy, and to delight in, to pursue. But when it comes to what's important, what's really important, especially it is, we, we come to realize what's really important is our relationship with Christ and our relationship with Christ's body, with people. You know, when it comes to church, our life building and, and our ministry as a church, there are so many things that we are concerned about, concerned about our properties, the buildings that we meet in, the monies that are part of our budgets, the policies that establish how we operate and run. And they're all key to ministry. But when life or death situations take place, you kind of just step back and say, well, those are not as important. They're not as important as the people in the church. 
They're not important, as important as the souls of men and women that come through these doors each week and every week. Each and every one affected by life in a sin-cursed world. Each one probably experiencing joys, but each one experiencing trials and tribulations because we live in a fallen world. Disappointments, struggling with sin, death, loss of jobs, not having enough. Sickness, disease. And when it comes to what is important for us and life on earth is people. It is first and foremost our people, but in our relationship with one another as a church because of our relationship with Christ. But it's also, as a body, our, our task, our great task in being a light to the world, telling others, by telling others about how they can be delivered from the sin that is a curse upon all of us. Because eventually death takes place, and all that they've done in this world will not matter, will not matter one bit. But what will matter in the end is that they know Christ. And they know Christ, and they were part of Christ's body. By the grace of God, I've renewed my commitment as a pastor of this church, as a mem- not even as a member of this church. This church is not going to be known for a building. We have a beautiful building. I love it. We're not going to be known for the building on the corner of 14th and Terrebonne. We're not going to be known for any particular program, okay? I love our day camp. It's one of the best programs we have. Even if our day camp becomes so great that everybody in the church volunteers for it, that's what Essa Bible is not going to be known for. Essa Bible is going to be known for its people. Everybody's going to know that that church that meets at that corner, that has that program, they're a bunch of sinners. They're a bunch of sinners who who know that they are saved by grace. They know that they've been saved by grace no matter where they've come from, no matter what they've done in their past. They're saved by grace, but they're being redeemed and they're being renewed because of the Savior who died for them. And that's who they keep talking about. And they keep living as if that is the most important thing in their lives. And they love God and they love one another because the body of Christ belongs to Jesus. That's in my commitment. That's what I would like to see as a Bible be. And that's really what God desires as a Bible to be. And this is, of course, always accomplished through the faithful proclamation of the gospel and the teachings of Christ. It's why we opened the word up this morning. It's what we're going to be about. And just as death and life remind us of our priorities, remind us of what's important, so does our passage today. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Verse 10 through 17 reminds a church that was caught up in the little things to remember the big thing. It reminds us of our responsibility to carefully build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. We can build many things in this world, but there's only one thing that we build that matters, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. And we looked at verses 10 to 11 in our first sermon. We looked at the exhortation to carefully build the church upon the foundation of Christ. It is a worthwhile work to build the church. You know, some of us are young. Some of us are wondering, you know, I'm part of this church, and it takes a lot, it's a lot of hard work, you know, it involves a lot of serving in different ministries. And sometimes you kind of wonder, I know there's a point in my life when I wondered, is all this work really worth it? Is investing my life into teaching those that children's class week in, week out, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to keep coming here every Sunday, serving as a, on the AV team? Is it really worth it to come and serve as the church custodian? Is it really worth it to come here and teach the class or to lead that Bible study? Is it to, to lead that women's ministry, that men's ministry, to plan for day camp, to plan for the special outreach events that we have? Are these things really worth it? Are we just kind of just wasting our time? Is this church just going to be, you know, and in the end we're just going to, oh, it wasn't worth it. Well, I'd invite you to just ask some of the older men and women in this church who are sitting here with us. Ask them, is it worth it? And I would know they would tell you that when 
we get to the latter half of our life, and I include myself in the latter half, there's no greater thing that I would want to invest my life in than building the church of Jesus Christ. Because it's the only building that's going to last. It's the only thing that's built on a foundation that is unshakable. That's the exhortation. Then secondly, we looked at the motivation in verse 12 to 15. A powerful motivation to carefully build is because simply Jesus is going to examine what we do. He's going to take a look at our work. There's going to be the judgment seat of Christ when he will come and he will reward us for our good works. And then or he will remove and burn up the works that were not good. Each of us will give an answer, and that alone is a motivation for us to build carefully upon the foundation of Christ. Now, thirdly, today in our passage, we find a revelation. Um, sometimes I think it should be declaration, but it's a, there's some similar ideas. A revelation, a declaration of the nature of the church. It's really and giving us a final, uh, final encouragement to build carefully upon Christ's church. This is no ordinary building that we're building. This is God's building. And that is what we find here in the church, that this church that we build this uh, is not just for our sakes, but it's for God's sake. And so we must be careful to build it and not be careless and destroy it. So today we're going to look at the three-point outline for us, the three declarations of the nature of the church that encourage us to build and not destroy the church of God. That's going to be a simple three-point outline for us as a declaration of the nature of the church. So first of all, we'll find in verse 16, we build and not destroy the church because the church is the temple of God. Paul tells us this in verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? This verse begins with a very rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question that admonishes the readers. It asks, don't you know? You know, when people say, don't you know? You know, they're, they're not really just asking if you really know or not. It's a form of rhetoric. It really just says, you ought to know, right? Don't you know that? You ought to know. Now, perhaps they had forgotten. Perhaps they had learned or never had learned it. But the Corinthians, Paul says, you ought to know that you are a temple of God. Paul uses this rhetorical question actually a, a total of 10 times in this letter, this letter of correction. And you can expect that because he's correcting them over and over about the things that they ought to know, but they, for some reason, don't or have forgotten. Here he says, what they ought to know is that you are a temple of God. There is a bit of a translation issue here that I'd like to just point out. And it's a little bit of Greek, so uh, if you don't understand it, kind of just kind of too Greeky, then just kind of ignore it. Just know that I prefer, the translation here says you are a temple of God. That's NAS. But in many of the other English translations, it'll be translated as you are God's temple, or better yet, you are the temple of God. I prefer that translation. In the original Greek, there's no article before the word temple. And when there's no article, sometimes we think in our English language, like in our English language, when there's no article, there's no the before, then it becomes indefinite. You might say instead of the church, it's a church. But in Greek, when there's no, when there's the absence of an article, it's really not calling by, it's not speaking of indefiniteness, but it's conveying, emphasizes the, the quality of the noun. So really Paul's saying you are by quality, in your essence, by nature, the temple of God. All that the nature of what a temple is, you are the temple of God. So it's not just you are a temple, as if there's many other temples. No, you are as a church, the temple of God. There are two words in the New Testament for temple. And when contrasted with each other, this one that's used here emphasizes the actual temple rather than the temple complex. In fact, in a few cases, it's used of the temple sanctuary, the very, the holy of holies part of the temple. You recall, King David was the one who first wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build a temple. But he was uh, too much of a sinner that he, God did not allow him. And so it was Solomon who built the temple, his son. And once built, 
There the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies, and there above the cherubim that covered the Ark of the Covenant, God's glory dwells among Israel in that temple sanctuary. And and that, that temple became the heart of the worship of Israel. It became the place where Israel would go because there God dwelt among their midst. There was God's glory. There they could see God. There they could meet with God. It was a holy place. And sadly, though, over hundreds of years of repeated sin and idolatries and rebellion, and rebellion against God, God's glory, according to the prophet Ezekiel, left the temple. It left the temple just as God, in a sense, removed his protecting grace upon Israel and allowed as a punishment for their sin for Israel to be taken into captivity by their enemies. But God's glory left the temple never to return to that building. Even after the second temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel in Ezra, it remained, though it remained the center of worship for Israel, the glory of God never came back. It never, God's glory did not dwell in the Holy of Holies. But better yet, instead, 400 years later, the glory of God came back in the flesh, in the man known as Jesus of Nazareth. He was the Son of God, and in him, Israel once again saw God's glory. The Apostle John writes in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Even Jesus referred to his own body as a temple in John 2.19 when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And destroy the temple they did. For Jesus was crucified for our sins. But he rose from the grave and ascended back to heaven along with his glory. So when Paul here says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? He is telling them a profound truth. A mind-blowing truth. Because this has to do with the glory of God. He says to them, you, plural, all of you, together, are singular temple. You are the temple of God. Now, I think many of us here are Christians for a long time, for a while. We've already learned somewhere along the way that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. When we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. And so our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, just a few chapters later. But Paul's not saying here that you, each of you individually, are the temple of God. He's saying all of you the church of Corinth, together, are the temple of God. You corporately are a temple of God. The church as a whole, the body of believers in Christ, is the temple of God. It's where, it is, it, you are where God dwells. For the Corinthians, temples were no, they were no, no strangers to temples. The city of Corinth had various temples, a lot of idols in those temples, where the idols in those temples were housed, but not so for Christians. You would never find a Christian temple in all the cities where Christians gathered to worship. There was no, not only was there no temple, but if there was a building that they met in, there was no idol, no statue of their God found there because their God does not dwell in buildings. In fact, he told David that, I'm God, I don't dwell in the buildings. I don't need to dwell. When have I ever needed a building? But God now dwells in his church. And he says this in verse 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? The spirit of God dwells in you, all of you, plural, not just individually, but all of you as a church. He dwells and dwells in the church as a whole. Paul earlier taught in 1 Corinthians 2.12 about how we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. We all have received the spirit. As a church, we receive the spirit. So wherever there is a local church, there is a church where the God's spirit dwells. There is the temple of God. 
Now, the main application of this, this truth, then, for us. Oh, I mean, uh, I skipped a part. The church is God's temple in that the Spirit of God now dwells in us. And God's glory, that God's glory that dwelt in the first temple and then went away, that came again in the form of Jesus and then went back up to heaven, is now again manifest in his church. That in the church where the Spirit dwells is where God's glory is made manifest. Not in the exact same way as the Shekinah, as the glory in the temple or the glory in Jesus Christ. But this is where God's Spirit dwells. This is where God's glory can be seen in the church, in his temple. The main application of this truth, then, is for us, is this, that we would give careful consideration to how we are building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ because we're not just building any ordinary building. We're not just building a social club. We're not just saying, hey, we just want, let's make the church better so that it'd just be fun to get together every week. Let's just not, let's not make this building, this ministry great so that everything just runs smooth. Let's, we're not just trying to get, build a better church so that hey, there's just more people will come. We're building, a, we're building a building that is the temple of God so that God, may, God, so that God will draw people to come here to know him and to worship him to be built up to go out and draw others to worship him. We are building God's building. And you think about when, when God gave instructions about the temple, he gave them many careful instructions. They were to build it with certain things and build it with, with, with a great, at a great expense. And when we consider the care in which Solomon's temple was built, how much more care should we give in the building of God's temple, the church? A real practical way that we might build the church is one of the easiest ways just to use your spiritual gifts. Use the tools that God gives us. God's, God not only saved us to be put us as workers and builders in this church, but he gave us tools to do it. His spirit, the spiritual gifts. Let's use those. Each of us has spiritual gifts. Each one is given for the manifestation of the spirit for the common good, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 7. So let's use it for the common good of building up this church. That's the first motivation we're motivated or the, we, because we build the church and we don't destroy it because the church is the temple of God. It's God's temple. It belongs to him. It's a holy temple. Secondly, the church is protected by God. That's why we build and do not destroy. Because if you destroy it, you will face God's wrath. Verse 17 says, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. <clears throat> Paul moves here from admonishment to warning. The key word here that's repeated twice is the word destroy. The, to destroy means to ruin, to corrupt, to spoil. When used of a building, it really just means to demolish it. Now here in the context of the analogy of a building, Paul is introducing here a third class of builders. We've already seen two other classes before us. We've seen... Uh, in, the class of builders known as skillful builders in verse 14. Those builders who build carefully with gold, silver, precious stones, who do good works that when tested by fire of, of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, they remain. They are faithful and they are rewarded. The second group of builders are those who are unskillful builders. We find these referred to in verse 15. They're those who build with wood, hay, and straw. Uh, they do works of inferior quality. Perhaps they serve with, in, with impure motives, with selfish motives. Even though they, their work, outward works may be good, but they do it with selfish motives. Maybe they do it with well intention, but they don't do, quite do it in accordance with God's word. They're not careful in handling God's word. But when tested by fire, their work did not remain. But God nevertheless uses those builders. But here in this verse, we find a third class of builders. And these builders, they look like just the other workers. They do the same kind of, they look like they're doing the same kinds of things. They come and they use the same kind of language. But instead of building the church, or at least trying to build the church, they are destroying the church. And Paul calls, well, I call these false builders. False builders. And we learn from this passage that false builders will face God's wrath. 
said, if any man destroys the temple of God, destroy him, God will. See, that's exactly how it is in the Greek. God will destroy the one who destroys the temple of God. He will be con- the one, and this destruction, this is a reference to being condemned for one's sin and sent to destruction for eternity in hell. What we gather from this is that while the first two classes of builders are genuine believers, this third class of builder is in reality an unbeliever. They're someone who don't know Jesus as their saving Lord. And so the fruits of their life reveal that reality. See, believers are given the spirit and thus enabled to build the church. But unbelievers don't have the spirit. They don't have the tools. And so they might even try to build. They might want to help to build the church. But whatever they try, they end up even unwittingly destroying the church as well as themselves. Now, this passage doesn't tell us exactly what destroys a church. What kind of things destroy a church? Well, first of all, we can consider the context of this letter. The context of this warning, not only here in 1 Corinthians 3, but in 1 Corinthians as a whole. That this letter, that we find that the church of Corinth is a simply a divided church. And we learn that division destroys the church. Division caused by jealousy and strife is one thing that can destroy a church completely. Churches split over sometimes the most smallest of matters. Yes, there are sometimes churches that split over essential biblical matters, matters of the gospel, matters of first importance, first priority, matters of unequivocal truth within the scriptures. But more often than not, churches split over non-essential matters. And those who lead such division potentially destroy a church and bring their own destruction upon them. Now, as bad as church division is in destroying a church, there are two things that I believe are are much more destructive to a church. And we see them reflected in Christ's letters to the churches of Asia in Revelation 2 to 3. Now, we don't have time to walk through all the churches, but I'd like to just kind of summarize in two points the warnings uh, that are given by Christ in Revelations 2 to 3. These are, he warns the churches there of things that are destructive to the church. One thing that he warns them of is false conversion. For false conversion destroys the church. In three of, first of all, in two of the letters, Jesus has only good things to say. So at least five other churches. But in three of the letters to the churches, to the, Christ condemns those who profess faith in Christ, but by their action reveal the possibility that they actually have no knowledge of Christ whatsoever. To the church of Ephesus, in Revelation 2, 4 to 5, Jesus condemns them for the failure to love Christ. They had forgotten their first love. A church can, and, church, and he tells them that a church can, we learn that a church can have right doctrine, good works, but if they don't have the love for Christ, the church's deeds and doctrines are empty. And Christ threatens to remove the lampstand, that is, the church, if it continues without love. To the church in Sardis, in chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, Jesus condemns them for having a reputation that they are alive, but in reality, they're dead. So they're known as Christians. They have a reputation. That they even call us that we're the uh, first Christian church of San Francisco, but having, they in reality have no life in Christ whatsoever. And so Christ ju- threatens to bring judgment upon them if they do not repent. And then thirdly, to the church in Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 15 to 18, Jesus condemns them for being neither hot nor cold, but instead they're lukewarm in their faith. There are people who profess faith in Christ. They say, we believe in Jesus, but they live life as if they have no need for Jesus. They just, I got my ticket, then they keep, you know, live their life whichever way they please. And Christ threatened to spit them out. You see, nothing is more destructive to the church of Jesus Christ to the, than people in the church claiming to be Christians who are not. It's why we as a church have just been emphasizing we regularly on a rotation have our fundamentals of the faith class. It's why we regularly have our fundamentals of the church of life, church life class because we want our, everybody who comes to these doors to know clearly what it means to be a Christian. You must know what it means to be converted 
you must know what it means to what is the gospel of Jesus Christ to truly repent from sin and turn in faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross. You must know that you must cast yourself completely on Jesus and hit what he has done for the forgiveness of your sins. You must know that. Not only do you much you say that, but we also want to teach you the fruits of such a confession, the fruits, the results of such a life, that you would be able to look at your own life, compare it to the scriptures, and be able to say, you know, I, I do see fruits in my life. I see a hunger and thirsting for the milk of the word. I see an increasing love for God and love for the saints. I see an increasing desire to, to be a part of the body and serving. These kinds of things reveal different fruits and among other fruits that you could see. Because we want you to be, if you're, you're regularly coming here, we want you to be a genuine believer in Christ. We don't, it, it, is this, it would be the great sorrow if some of us here ended up before the glory, before Christ. And we just, at that moment, say, well, I, I thought I believed in Jesus, but then we found out we didn't. We were deceived. Those who profess Christ but have no love for Christ, no life in Christ, no need for Christ, destroy the life and testimony of Christ's church. It is a dangerous thing. And we, we and that's why we, don't be offended if you come here and we start asking you about the gospel. We may ask you, say, oh, when did you believe in Jesus, you know? Because we just want to know that you believed in Jesus. And that's what we should be asking with no apology, brothers and sisters. Even saints that you've known for a long time, don't just presume. Don't just presume Derek here is a believer in Jesus Christ. Especially if you haven't heard his testimony. Go up and ask him, hey, when did you come to know Christ? And then he'll do the same for you. Say, hey, when did you come to know Christ? How did you come to know Jesus? Some of these things we're just naturally talking to be encourage great fellowship as well. But false conversion. You know, I had a great illustration that I couldn't use in my first service. I want to use it again. And I want to use it now because we have time. Can you imagine a donut shop? You like donuts? I love donuts. Okay. And you saw the sign of donut shop, right? And you go in the donut shop. And you go there, oh, and you walk in, and you see, oh, this is a donut shop for sure because they, there's the recipes. Oh, man, on the wall, the history of donuts. Oh, man, I hear on the radio songs about donuts. I even see some written testimony of people who have eaten donuts. And then when I get to the counter, I say, oh, I, like, I like just a simple original. No, no glaze for me. Sorry, we don't sell donuts here. Well, you got some apple filled? No, we, we don't sell that. Bear claw? No, we don't sell donuts here. What? What? Like, this is the donut shop, right? How can the donut shop not sell donuts? It's worse. When the sign on the door says, Church of Jesus Christ. People come in, and they come in the doors, and they say, whoa, man, oh, yeah, I hear songs about Jesus. I, I hear, I see history of people who have believed in Jesus. Oh, man, I, I, this is great. I, I see there, there's, there's a, <clears throat> over there are pictures of, of Jesus. But when they come in, and they kind of interact with people here, they find no love of Christ. They find there's no life in Christ. And when they talk to people, they find they, people don't even need Christ. That is a shame. We need to be, make sure that we are a church that are people of converted, redeemed people. Let's make sure first and foremost for yourself. But let's not presume that upon everybody else. Let's encourage one another let's, as, as, to be in the faith. That we would be in the faith. Let us make sure we profess faith in Christ. That we love Christ. That we have a life in Christ. And that we always, always, always need Christ. Don't be a false convert. Now the other thing that's more destructive than church division, according to Revelation 2 to 3, is false doctrine. False doctrine destroys the church. To the church in Pergamum, in chapter 2, verse 14 to 16, Christ condemns those who hold the teaching of Balaam. And the Nicolaitans, he warns them to repent or else he would come to wage war against them. To the church in Thyatira in, two, in Revelation 2, 20 and 23, Christ condemns them for tolerating the false prophetess Jezebel, who teaches and leads his servants astray. 
He warns them to repent or he will bring tribulation upon them. You see, false doctrine in the life of the church hides the truth of the gospel. It clouds the gospel, and that threatens to always destroy the church. The gospel is our life. It's the message by which people enter into life in the church. If it gets clouded, if it gets lost, or if it gets hidden because of false doctrine, the church begins to die. Now, God can keep saving the church even with a weak presentation of the gospel. The Spirit is able with just a, with a simple gospel presentation. But over time, when the church stops preaching the gospel of Christ, it will die because of false doctrine. And so we need to be vigilant against false teachers. Do not let them in our midst. We've even, man, in the past five years, five years, at least five, ten years, we've had several people come say, I want to speak. I want to come teach. They come on Sunday morning and say, oh, I have a word. Immediately when I hear that, I say, no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to let you speak. Um, you know, we, we don't let just anybody come and speak on the pulpit. Now, unless they have a letter of commendation, which, you know, we respect that. It's biblical. Um, false prophets only want to come and speak, but they never want to be part of the life of the church. Well, there's a third and final motivation. Church is the temple of God. That's what we're building. We're building God's temple. Secondly, the church is protected by God, so let's be careful because we don't want to be destroying the church. Thirdly, third motivation to build and not destroy the church is because the church is holy to God. Here, the latter half of verse 17, Paul gives an explanation for why God will destroy the one who destroys his temple. It's quite obvious. It's kind of sort of even understood from what's already been said, but I want to just point it out specifically where Paul says, for the temple of God is holy. And then he goes further, and that is what you are. Because God's temple is holy, and because God's temple is the church, and you are part of the church, then if the temple is holy, the church is holy, that means you are holy. This body is holy to God. It means to be holy means to be set apart, to be sacred, to be devoted to God. And that's what we as a church must be. Holy, set apart, sacred, devoted to God as a church. We don't want to just be a community center for our neighborhood. If God would open that door, that's okay. We want to be a rescue center where people are saved from sin. In the scriptures, the things that are holy demand special care and approach. Remember just in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, because the ground around the burning bush was holy because God's presence was there in that bush, what did Moses have to do? He couldn't just walk up to it. He had to take his sandals off. It required a special way to approach. In 2 Samuel 6, poor Uzzah, the story goes, God struck him down because he was irreverent when he reached out and put his hand on the Ark of Covenant, the holy Ark of the Covenant, where God's glory would manifest above. In Leviticus 23, 27 following, the person who did any work on the Day of Atonement, the holy day, would be destroyed by God. What's more, even only on that day, according to Leviticus 16, could the high priest and him alone enter into the Holy of Holies, where he would offer sacrifice on behalf of the nation. And even then, he himself had to make sure that he offered sacrifice for his sin, and he had to dress appropriately, and actually he had to tie a string to his leg in case he didn't approach God appropriately and die. The holy things of God require and necessitate a special care and approach. Paul tells us that the church is holy to God, and therefore, we ought to treat it so. And when we hear this, we think of 1 Peter 1.15, which we just talked about, like the Holy One who called you, behold yourselves also in all your behavior. Now, sometimes we think of holiness in terms of our moral, ethical behavior, and certainly that's an element to this, that we are to pursue holiness in that way, moral holiness, to strive to live righteously, not sin by the grace of God. 
But the emphasis here is more on how we care and approach our part in the body of this church. Do we treat the church as holy? Do we treat this body of believers as holy? Do we treat it in a holy way? How did the Israelites treat the temple holy? By obeying God's commandments with regards to the temple. They had to offer this sacrifice on these days, this sacrifice in this way, this many sacrifices in that way. I had to come with a perfect, a perfect lamb or goat. In a similar way, God has given us many instructions for how we ought to conduct ourselves when we enter and gather with the church of Jesus Christ. And so to treat Christ's church as holy is to follow and observe the commands that God has for us in his word with regards to the church. Do we treat this church as if it's holy? Do we follow God's instructions? Do we serve as he calls us to because it's holy? Do we love one another because this church is holy? Do we make disciples you know, being in, within the church because this church is holy to God? We are God's house. We are God's temple. We are God's holy temple. Are we treating God's house with the holiness that it deserves? Are we building the church of Jesus Christ as the holy temple that it is? Let us treat God's church as holy. You and I are part of something that is great. We are part of something that is eternal. We are part of God's temple. We're not only members of it, but we're also builders of it. God has given us this great privilege to build his temple. <coughs> and in Paul, in another place, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, writes these words. And I want to end with these words. <coughs> Excuse me. That in Christ, in whom that is Christ, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Notice here this emphasis that the building of the church, this building that we are part of and that we're building together, is a task. Not for the individual, but it's a task we do together. Together. We're fitted together. We're built together. We build the church of Jesus Christ together. This is God's temple. We are part of God's temple. We build this temple together. You know, <clears throat> many times, especially as a Christian, we tend to think about the Christian, our Christian faith as a very individual thing. We tend to think about, well, you know, I go to church so that I would draw closer to God. That I want to build myself up in the faith by, you know, doing this or doing that. And there's elements of that. I get that. <clears throat> but the Bible instructs us here that we are building more than just ourselves. We are building the church, God's temple. And we're all part of this, and we need to do this together. When we, when we go to heaven, what's going to bring glory to Jesus Christ? Your individual life? For the glory of his beautiful bride, the church, the body of Christ, without blame, without impurity, spotless, blameless, the bride of Christ, purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ. This church, though, that is built up by you and me together, together. Let us build Christ's church together. This is a worthy task. It is a worthy task because it is God's building, God's holy temple, built upon the unshakable foundation of Jesus Christ. And we are its builders. Let us be careful. Let us be skilled builders, as Paul was a skilled master builder. Let us build faithfully upon the foundation knowing that one day we will all give an answer. We're all going to give an answer to Jesus. Let us be found by him to be faithful.
let us together strive to be the temple of God, to build one another up so that we would be the temple of God that reflects the glory of God to our neighborhood, our city, and our world. Then when they look, talk about San Francisco Bible Church, or would it be that they would talk about any church of Christ, that people would say, there we see the glory of God. There is the light. There is the light of the city on a hill. There is where the truth is. There is where life is. There is where love is. Let us go there because we don't find it down here. And let us find it among us. Let's build this church. It's a high ideal, but Christ and God has given it to you and me. Will we build the church? Will you commit to this? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your church. Your church, your temple, purchased by the blood of Christ, that we can be members of, but yet also, Lord, we thank you that you call us to be builders of it. Lord, help us to be faithful to understand, as we understand the nature of your church, that it is your building, your temple, guarded and protected by you because it is holy. Help us to be those who treat it holy, to build it faithfully upon the foundation of Christ so that the light of Christ would be made known from this, this church to our community and our city who desperately need Christ and don't even know it. Oh, Lord, help us to be the light to our city and help us to show your glory to the world because your spirit dwells within us. We know that we cannot do this on our own, Father. We thank you that you've given us your spirit, that as we depend upon your spirit, that you would lead and use us to accomplish this task. Thank you, Father, for this beginning that we have here on the corner of 14th and Terraville. Help us to be faithful until you return where you call us home. In Jesus' name, amen.